Coming up on Word Matters, dog whistles and red meat. And then we'll deal you in on some phrases from card games. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. The parlance of political commentary moves fast and often paints a vivid picture as it goes. That's where we're starting today, with Amon Shea diving into two fairly new and very evocative terms, dog whistle and red meat. Listen carefully. If you spend any time following politics or following somebody who follows politics, you probably in the last few years have come across the expression dog whistle referring to something other than an auditory signal given to a dog. <laughs> it is something that we define within the context of politics as an expression or statement that has a secondary meaning intended to be understood only by a particular group of people. It is often used before another noun. This is an interesting shift in the meaning of dog whistle. And dog whistle, of course, has a fairly obvious thing, which is that it's a whistle to call a directed dog, but especially it's one that sounds at a frequency that is inaudible to the human ear. And so dog whistle, say politics, dog whistle legislation, dog whistle speech is very, very similar in a way. It's just a kind of shift, a figure of shift to the left or the right. It's a fairly recent shift. Mm. The original dog whistle, I don't know how old the actual implement is, or earliest written evidence of them is from about the end of the 18th century. It comes up in John O'Keefe's work, The Irish Mimic, which was published in 1795. And the character in this play has the line, as to bothering pewter pots against men's foreheads and making cravats of their kitchen pokers, that's all to me a mere dog's whistle. So dog's whistle rather than dog whistle, but obviously fulfilling the same lexical function there. Now, in terms of when it took on the political meaning, it's actually very, very recent. And the earliest evidence that we've seen comes from the Oxford English Dictionary, who found it in a Canadian newspaper, The Ottawa Citizen. And they have it from 1995. That's the earliest figurative use. I've looked into this myself. I have not yet seen anything before this. It could have come up before, but it's not widespread use, certainly. It does come up in not in figurative use per se, but as a simile, there was a book in 1947 titled American Economic History. And in the book, they refer to a speech, President Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as being, quote, designed to be like a modern dog whistle with a note so high that the sensitive farm ear would catch it perfectly while the unsympathetic ear would hear nothing. Hmm, that's oh, it. That's it. It's close, right. but it defines it for us. Except yeah. that it's a simile rather sure. than a figurative use, so right. we don't count that as actual evidence. So sure. It's not an instance of the term in use, but it lays the groundwork for the term. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It shows that people were thinking about dog whistles in this way right. in the 1940s. Right. And explaining it very clearly. Right. Very helpfully for us. But the actual use of it is really quite new. And in a way, it reminds me of another term which comes up often in political sense, which is red meat because we often hear about politicians throwing red meat to their base. And in a political sense, red meat is a little older than dog whistle. It goes back to the 1940s. And before that, it was used as a way of advertising motion pictures. You know, red meat as a term is actually about as old as dog whistle. They both come up from the 1790s. I mean, our earliest citation for red meat is in a George Coleman play. And it's interesting that both of these come up in plays because mm. I think that a lot of times theater serves as a useful 
corpus of use because it more often replicates spoken language. Yeah. And so in a way, you actually find terms, particularly idiomatic terms, that come up earlier in this sort of replication of spoken language. Right, a kind um, of orchestrated spoken language. Right, an orchestrated yeah. colloquialism, exactly. Mm. So this is a, a George Coleman play called The Surrender of Calais. And a character says, here's meat, neighbors, fine, raw, red meat to turn the tide of tears from your eyes and make your mouth water. However, the sense of red meat like something substantial that can satisfy a basic need or appetite. So there's a citation from an industry paper titled The Nickelodeon from 1911. An exchange manager recently complained to me of the lack of sensational subjects. His actual words were, they, the public, want red meat and they want it raw. The following year, a citation from the Moving Picture News in 1912. He told how ministers, representative citizens, had condemned the motion picture shows, and when he investigated it, the real red meat of the situation, the principal objection, seemed to be because of the price of admission was cheap. And then in the 1920s, we start to see the term in advertising copy for film. So an advertisement from 1928 from the movie Greased Lightning described it as the red meat sort of picture you'll remember for weeks. It's being used in popular print media so that it's presumed that people understand it. Right. In 1926, an ad for a movie called The Rainmaker called it, quote, a strong red meat love drama. So it's mm. a very clear figure mm. of use. And then again, in the 1940s, we start to see red meat turn into a political term. It's a little unsettling how both dog whistle and red meat in the realm of politics are really saying something about the animal nature of the voter. Yeah, they seem to both have like this idea of getting the voters to come to you, right? You're throwing red meat, you're kind of throwing them into the animal pit or whatever, and the tigers go running after it or the blow the dog whistle. And this certain subset of people that will understand what you are saying will then pay attention to you. That's essentially what it's about. It's definitely about manipulation by the one who is wielding the tool or the nourishment. It doesn't convey a feeling of appealing to one's higher nature. There's the political use of colors, red meat, and also the term red, which originally meant communist or over relating to a communist country and especially to the former Soviet Union. But paradoxically, also in American politics, more recently means tending to support Republican candidates or policies. It's sort of odd that of all the parties, Republicans are called the red states. And that was sort of arbitrary because I think on election night, the maps would show different colors. Right. I believe they switched at one point because there used to be old elections where blue would refer to the Republican and red would refer to the Democrat. And then I think they weren't really fixed to one party or the other from year to year or election to election and then eventually settled around the one color and then red for Republican and blue for Democrat. It's only since the election of 2000 that we refer to red and blue states in this way, whereas before that they were just discriminating them arbitrarily just to show one side or another, and they could have used any two colors. Presumably, they used the patriotic colors, sure. you know, and that's what they just flipped them back and forth. At, and yeah, then. exactly. But there's a lot of like other interesting political language that has survived even from like the 19th century. You refer to uh, uh, muckrakers and yeah. carpetbaggers, yeah. and I believe 
earmark once referred to how cattle would be sorted out. You talk about your earmarking spending, you would mark the cattle by their ear. And pork barrel. And pork barrel. And so it's interesting that there's kind of these terms that make you think of agriculture and maybe like farming, and yet a lot of them have kind of stuck around for these political applications. And earlier, we most often now hear about Maverick, in large part because of John McCain's right. sure, sure, association sure. with that name. And that obviously came from cattle. We should tell the whole story because right. not all the listeners know the whole story. Will, will you tell the whole story? There was a rancher whose name was Maverick, and he refused to build fences. And so his cattle would roam much to the chagrin of his neighbors. And people would steal his cattle because they would wind up on his property. And so he branded his cattle with his name. He was a maverick in doing this. Uh huh. You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. After the break, we'll deal you a new hand of words. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Neil Servin. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. Long before an evening's entertainment involved Netflix and chill, a night of pleasant diversion among friends often involved a deck of cards. The sound of shuffling cards may have faded from cultural prominence, but our language is riddled with idioms that echo it. Here's Neil Servan going all in on words from the card table. We have a phrase in English that we use for something that presents an unknown or unpredictable factor, and that is wild card. Here's an example in Cosmopolitan. Informing my mother was tougher because she and I are not close. She's always been a wild card emotionally, overreacting to minor things. It's pretty clear what that means. It's like you don't know what you're going to get from this person. So an example from the AV Club about, I believe it's the show Game of Thrones, everyone's eyes are in the sky in the clip as... Riggle and Drogon soar over the huddled masses, inspiring everything from awe to fear to whatever the hell Cersei is doing. She's the wild card in all of this, we venture. Will she join the new queen, aid her enemies in eradicating the Night's King's army, or will she simply sip her wine as the world burns? So, wild card obviously comes from card games. Wild card is a card like a deuce or a joker. It can be used to stand in for any card as designated by the holder. There was no real pre-existing use of wild before that, strictly as an adjective, before it became used in the term wild card, but then we later would use it in phrases like, the joker is wild, or constructions like, the deuce is wild. 
it's not really hard to see where this came from. Something like an animal that is wild is likely to stray. You don't know what it's going to be, so you don't know ahead of time what the card is a juice or a joker is going to be until you need it. I think it's interesting that the wild card in a card game is a card you want, right? Oh, I've got this card. I can play it in any situation because it can be any kind of card. But if you're looking for emotional support from somebody who is emotionally a wild card, you're not going to get what you want. You don't know if they're going to help your hand the way a a deuce or a joker might. So you want to have the wild card. You don't want somebody to be a wild card necessarily. Right. right. Or if you are, you got to keep your fingers crossed because maybe they will behave in a way that you don't want them to, or maybe they'll behave in a way you do want them to. It's also interesting that wild card is then taken on further extended usage, which is in terms of computing. It could be a wild card character, which could be, again, anything that you want it to be. So as Emily pointed out, it's not necessarily desirable in a partner, but it is desirable in a poker game Mm -hmm. or in Boolean logic. Right. You, you, type, right. you type C-A-T asterisk and then you get words like catamaran and right. cat's paw and mm-hmm. catastrophe. And it also turns up in sports. It's the term that they've chosen for setting up playoff systems where teams that automatically qualify by meeting the goal of being first place in their divisions, they are automatic. But then there are other teams that need to fill out the playoff bracket. And so they aren't necessarily automatic winners, but because they reached a certain record, they get selected as wildcard teams. Like the NFL uses a wildcard system, so does Major League Baseball. So that's another way we've used it. There's nothing really unpredictable about it, but it probably goes back to drawing, like the way cards are selected for who gets to qualify and who does not. Someone gets to be a wild card and then gets advanced to the tournament. So there's uncertainty inherent in a wild card. Right. And so... Wild card, the term dates to the early 20th century and was often used in phrases that extended the card game metaphor. So it would be used with verbs like to deal, to be dealt a wild card, to discard a wild card, to play a wild card. And later we've used this same manner of phrasing when we say to play other types of cards. In rhetoric, of course, you can play something like a race card. You can play the woman card. You can use some kind of tactic that is deemed to give you some kind of advantage. And it's usually reductive. You don't say, I'm going to play the race card now. It's someone else is accusing you of it usually when you bring it up as a subject. Neil, are you saying that wild card dates to the early 20th century for the extended use or for the card game use? The card dates to the early 20th century, and then I've got a figurative use from 1947. Those are both much newer than I thought. I think of wild cards and card games as being played since longer before modern entertainment. Right, and you would think because it's what we did to entertain ourselves, play cards and gather in, in parlors and whatever, before radio and television came along. I looked into the race card some time ago, and I think I found that dating to the mid-1970s and first in British English. Mm -hmm. The British newspaper, The Observer, stated that the Tory leadership declined to play the race card. So, you know, they declined to use the issue of race to their political advantage. Right. You brought up woman card. And Alexandra Petri, I believe is how she pronounces her name, Washington Post columnist who writes these really great satirical articles. She was writing one on the term on the woman card. And of course, the woman card, as you mentioned, is, you know, the idea that you would use the fact of one's being a woman to your advantage politically or socially. But her article took it and imagined the woman card as a kind of rewards card, like your gas card that gets you extra (laughs) points on whatever. 
But the woman card will get you discounted wage. It'll get you... Get you uh, 77 cents on the dollar. That's right. 77 <laughs> cents on the dollar. It'll get you more expensive hygiene products because they are pink, etc. It's a very funny column. There's also a phrase we should mention is play the trump card, which does not have anything to do with the 45th president, but it figuratively means a decisive overriding factor or final resource. But it does refer to its use in card games, where it was a card of any suit that ranked higher than cards of any of the other suits. So that would be used in games like Euchre and Spades. Zadie Smith, in the novel White Teeth, she also uses this in a card game phrase. She says, for after all, she was the mother here, the mother of the boys in question. She held the trump card. Should she be forced to play it? Now, a wild card can be used as a trump card. That's the great thing about a wild card, is that a wild card can be any card. The wild card is ostensibly a card that it gives you such an advantage that it has power or value over other cards. What this leads me to is examples of so many other idioms and phrases in English that originate from card games. Do any of these come from Euchre? Because I would be so excited to hear some (laughs) Euchre-inflected English. Well, interestingly, Euchre itself can be a verb meaning to deceive someone, right? Just like snooker refers to the pool game, same idea. Euchre can mean to do something deceptive. You mean it can mean it in the sense of any word that you use to mean something can mean something? Or do you mean as in the sense of people commonly use it in this sense now? People do use it, yes. I, as an editor at Merriam-Webster Dictionary, give you permission, (laughs) Ammon Shea, to use Euchre in this way. I'm going to do it. Okay. As soon as I leave here. So, an example is in the programs of Franklin Roosevelt during the Great Depression, trying to relieve the country from the Great Depression. He called his program the New Deal, programs such as Social Security and the Works Progress Administration. And that referred to the idea that people were getting a new hand dealt to them at cards. Oh, wow. Yeah, I had no idea. I took that deal to be sort of an agreement, not a literal deal of cards. Writers such as Mark Twain had used the term previously with a similar metaphorical angle. In Connecticut Yankee, in King Arthur's Court, it said, It would seem to me that what the 994 dupes needed was a new deal. And so I think journalists would then pick up the term and then kind of apply it to the idea of card games. Like, okay, we're cleaning up the table, we're going back to start, and we're going to be all be anteing up again or being having our pots refreshed. The idea was that people were just getting a new chance as they were struggling up to that point. It's a great metaphor if your readership plays cards, right? Everybody gets a new hand. Everybody starts again at the same place. Nobody gets euchred. Nobody gets (laughs) euchred. One from card games that I didn't know was from a card game is the term left in the lurch. So lurch is used in cribbage. Do any of you play cribbage? I played cribbage with my grandparents when I was a kid. I don't remember how to play, but it was really fun. I think I played in college, but I couldn't tell you how to play now. Anyway, lurch refers to a decisive defeat in which an opponent wins a game by more than double the defeated player's score. And so that comes from Middle French. The word lorch described a game similar to backgammon from which arose the use of the same term for such ignoble defeat. Another one that I would not have thought came from cards is above board. I thought that was nautical when I first heard it. I always assumed it was nautical. No, above board refers to keeping your hands over the table. The board is the table when you are dealing. So when you keep your hands above board, people know you're not cheating and reaching for You're not sticking an ace up your sleeve. Not sticking Uh an ace up your sleeve, which is another phrase from card games. Sure. 
Another one is Follow Suit. That refers to games like Whist. I think it might actually occur in Euchre, too. You have trick-taking games where the object is to follow suit by playing a card that is the same suit that's been played before. It's also similar to Uno. It's not suits, but it's yeah, a similar idea. Uno is basically based on those games where you're supposed to match either the color or the number that's been played before. Ace in the Hole, which is sort of like Ace Up One Sleeve. Ace in the Hole refers to the whole card, which is a card that's dealt face down like in Blackjack. To have in spades is something to have talent in spades. It doesn't mean the amount that's going to fill a shovel that comes from <laughs> card games. And then one of my favorites is According to Hoyle. Edmund Hoyle was the guy who wrote all the rules of card games. He lived in 1672 to 1769, and he wrote books including a short treatise on the game of whist. He wrote that in 1742. And his books were regarded as so authoritative, getting all the nuances of all these rules of all these different games and all these different variations of games. The phrase, according to Hoyle, entered our language, meaning in full compliance with accepted customs. According to the rules. According to the rules, say the order of a parade. If you're trying to get all the people in their proper order for a parade, then once you did that, you would say everything was according to Hoyle. I've never heard that in common use. I think that it's gone the way of card games. Did you ever go through a time period when you played cards? Yeah, I spent an entire summer playing Canasta with a bunch of women who were a little bit older than me when I was 12. For an elderly woman where we had a summer place and they needed a fourth for Canasta. And they <laughs> just somehow wrote me in. It's been three months playing Canasta. <laughs> That's great. There is a, there is a short story I loved it. there. I played a lot of cards in college. It was something to do and it was a way to earn money off kids who were more <laughs> inebriated than you were. Ooh. Yeah. Which you I euchred did. him. Yeah, you did euchre Which him. I did. Yes. But we didn't play euchre, though. Doesn't matter. I got to use euchre as a verb since you brought it up. My day is complete. <laughs> Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us wherever you get your podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.